Hello, hello. Hi. I'm Sarah Geis from Third Coast, and I am so happy to introduce to you Rob Rosenthal, audio producer and super teacher. I bet many of you in the audience already know him. And he is also the host and creator of the very best behind-the-scenes audio storytelling podcast, How Sound, which we are about to enter now. Thanks. Thanks, everyone, for coming. I'm Rob. I produce How Sound, the backstory to great radio storytelling, and it's produced by PRX and Transom. We've just started collaborating the two organizations, PRX and Transom, on How Sound, that is. And if you're a producer, you need to have your work up on PRX. It's an online marketplace. It's a great way to get your stories to radio stations, um, and it's just a good place to promote your work and that sort of thing. And if you're looking to learn how to do radio work, Transom's a great place to do that. It's an online... um, There's the online component of Transom. It's just like the go-to site for learning how to produce radio stories. And if you already know how to produce radio stories and you're looking for some inspiration, you're feeling desperate and alone, go to Transom and we will solve that for you. Um, And we also have a workshop too. You can come to Woods Hole, uh, which is on Cape Cod, and come to learn how to do radio storytelling for eight weeks. And we also do traveling workshops. We go around the country and teach for a week at a time. So check out Transom if you want to learn how to do radio. Annie. Hello. It's really great to have you here. Thanks for having me. What we're going to do is this. Uh, First, I need to tell you, we're going to go to some dark places today, like really dark places. So strap yourselves in. Um, And we're going to feature interviews with three people who won awards uh, this year at Third Coast. And the first person we're going to talk to is Annie, uh, Annie McEwen. And, uh, and we're going to listen to a portion of her story. And then after that, we're going to bring up Pat Walters and Luke Malone and talk to them about the two stories that uh, they won awards for. But all that's coming up soon. And you will also have a chance to ask questions. So be thinking about questions as you're listening to pieces. Um, first, I want to introduce Annie to you. Um, Annie is from uh, Newfoundland. I so want to live in Newfoundland. Oh, my God. You need to go to Newfoundland if you've never been to Newfoundland and bring your kayak uh, because it's the way to go. Um, Annie's also, uh, she's an associate producer at Battery Radio up in Newfoundland. She's been doing a bit of radio teaching of late and working on GPS-triggered Soundwalk apps. Yes. She and I are going to talk afterwards. I want to know about that. Um, Her Third Coast award-winning story is called Here I Am and Here Be Danger. And so just to maximize our time, we're going to listen to about two-thirds of it or so, and here it is. Foghorns are interesting things, really, in phenomena, in that they aren't saying, come here. They're saying, I care about you, and go away. Now what? You're going to crash upon the rocks. You're going in on shoals. You're going somewhere where you're likely to fall into harm. I like on the subject of love. I'm just sick of thinking about it. It doesn't make any sense to me. And, yeah, I just really don't want to talk about it. Like, really, really don't want to talk about it. Just the idea of two people being in love. I don't know. Maybe it's just not meant for everyone. 
When I was in my early 20s, I thought if two people loved each other, that was all you needed in life. But you can, you can love each other and it can be not good and not right and not working and just not possible. Now last was a young woman who met her true love. And he loved her as much as she loved him. But it happened that he was a fisherman, and he was lost at sea, and she was heartbroken. He was my first kiss, my first lover, my first everything. Foghorn noises are low-frequency noises. And so you get that low moan, and you can feel that shiver. If you're close enough to it, you can, your body picks up those vibrations, right? So it's a, not only a hearing, you know, it can be a feeling kind of situation as well. The fact that we worked together and that he was in a relationship, just I didn't admit to myself that maybe I actually did have feelings for him. And then I found out that he was separating. He was he was leaving his um, relationship, and that was the first time that I knew. Oh my God! I want to, I like I want to be with him. I want. I very much want to be with him. And I told him. There was a gathering at his house, and he was busy. He was preparing the food. He was hosting people, getting people's drinks. And I was cutting myself short, saying, you know, I know you're busy. Like, I realize that you're, you have all these things to, to tend to. And he just said, I have all the time in the world. a few months of a kind of okay maybe we're going to be together maybe these feelings are actually going to amount to a kind of romantic relationship but it was never straightforward it was always maybe this is not a good idea maybe this is not a good time when the foghorn sounds it's in a time when you're of limited visibility and it is a, a situation where you're heading into danger. Then he sends me a message saying that he's going to try to return to his family and try to make things work. And that he was sorry he couldn't have been stronger. Right, and so there you are groping and you're in, a, in this darkness and this thing is pushing you away and it's doing it in a funny kind of way because it says I want you to be safe so leave me alone go away from me I don't even know how I reacted at the time I may be a bit in disbelief it is saying here I am and here be danger for you 
sometimes I wish I could just have grown up in some tiny little friggin' town, and you date the only girl that's in town that isn't your cousin, and it just works out, because you're too busy doing work to worry about how their friggin' love life is going. You know what I mean? Sometimes I, I wish it was a little simpler like that. To me, it's so simple. You want to spend all your time with someone. You want to talk to someone. You talk to someone, they understand you more than anyone else. You be with them. Why does love have to make you feel like shit all the time? Sick of being bullied by it. And you gotta be tough. And I'm not tough with matters like this, that's for sure. So that's why I'm just not... Not really gonna give it up for love at the moment. Because sometimes it seems like a lot more friggin' trouble than, than it's worth. You're out there in a storm-tossed night. You know, if, if the wind was blowing on shore and you were in a sailing boat, boy, you didn't have a heck of a lot of ability to stay away from those shoals and the likes. I would wake up furious. Like, for months, I would just wake up absolutely enraged. Sometimes I would just wake up and throw my alarm clock across the room. People are like that, right? I'm bad news for you, you know, I'm a getaway. Don't, don't come near this. I'm only going to mess up your life. And that's the clip from, from Annie's piece. It's called Here I Am and Here Be Danger, an award winner. An award winner. So the first question I have to ask is, is where did you get the idea for this? And I've, I've played this in class, and the first thing people go, where, what start, how did this start? Was it the interview with the guy who talked about the Foghorns, or was it your, like the, the man and the woman? Like, how did this, yeah. where did it come from? Um... Well, I got my heart broken, and it was the first time, and I suddenly realized that I wanted to reach out to people, and I emailed all the people I knew who had broken hearts, and I wanted to connect with them, because I finally understood what it was that they were trying to tell me when I was, yeah, invincible. Um, and so I started just interviewing all these people that I knew uh, who were brave enough to talk to me about their experience with heartbreak. And so I just had these like messy, hour-long interviews, um, and I didn't know what to do with them. And then uh, I was at a storytelling circle in St. John's. I have a storytelling circle once a month. And there's this amazing guy um, named Gary Green, and I was just watching him. And the story was kind of, all these interviews were floating around in my head. I was like, this guy, I love the way his brain works. Like... I wonder, maybe I'll interview him about heartbreak. So I thought maybe just interviewing him about heartbreak in general. But then that night I went home to my kitchen and sat at the kitchen table and I was just listening to the foghorn moaning as it always does uh, in the harbor. Um, and I was just like all these lonely people sitting at their kitchen tables listening to this goddamn foghorn. Um, and then I thought maybe I'll just talk to Gary and see if he has anything to say about foghorns and heartbreak. And <laughs> luckily he had, he just is like, you know, he just, he's just an amazing guy. And I was just so fortunate to, to meet him. And we just like, you know, sat in his van with the snow coming down around us. And uh, he just went, started talking 
perfectly. I was like, this is amazing, keep going. <laughs> so it just, that knitted the whole thing together because I needed to pull it into the land of metaphor. Otherwise, it would just be a bunch of like really deep, dull, sad things. So, yeah. <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah, I know. It's great. <laughs> so this is your story then in some respects. Sort of, but I did, I'm, I'm, my voice is not in it. So yeah. tell me about that choice then. So the idea started with you. Why not write about yourself? Well, actually, I actually called up my ex-boyfriend who had moved away like immediately, so I hadn't seen him or anything, and I interviewed him for this, um, which was really hard and sucked. Um, and then I just listened to the tape, and it wasn't good. It was too close to me. I couldn't see it. I couldn't... Um, I couldn't see how it fit into the story. And in the end, I just didn't use it. Hmm. Yeah, sorry. No, that's okay. No, that's okay. <laughs> I, um, so Annie was a student at Transom um, a year ago. And one of the things we talk about in class, uh, hopefully you remember, uh, is uh, the factual truth of a story and then the emotional truth of the story. And this, this doesn't, I mean, this isn't a factual story. Yeah. This isn't necessarily a factual story. I mean, there are facts in it, I suppose, but it's mostly emotion. Yeah. Can you talk about that? Can you, like, how do you find the emotional truth of a story when so much of it is about the emotion? Hmm. Uh-oh. I don't know. Um, I don't know if it was, like, I didn't need to find it. It was there the whole time. It was so strong. Um, I just needed to figure out a way to put it together in a, in a way that there was some sense of narrative enough to keep it moving. Um, yeah, I guess emotion is pretty much the driving force, though. I don't know. I don't if, know. If I was producing a story, I might have a list. All right, I need to have this character and this mm-hmm. character, and they need to say this information here and this, and this is how they feel about things. Mm-hmm. But, and so I would try to tap into that, and I would throw yeah. some, some emotion in it. Not, as, not like it's just sort of a recipe, mm-hmm. and, and, but... But the driving force would be the narrative and the facts. Mm-hmm. And, but in this case, it's the driving force is emotion. Yeah. And so did you keep checking in on yourself? Like, how am I feeling as I produce this? I'm I was a wreck when I made this completely. I was just like so... And I was making it all alone. I didn't show it to a soul. And so I thought it was just like, this is the worst piece of crap in the world. And no one will ever date me again. Uh, all my friends are boring and sad. Um... So, yeah, I don't know. It just was, I, I was in that feeling. And I, um, so it didn't need to, there was no, like, I didn't have to articulate to myself, like, okay, this is, this is the next step. It just kind of, uh, it was, I was in it. If you folks have questions, please come up to the microphone and I'll ask a question while you guys are lining up. Are, are you a poet? Uh, no. What do you mean? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, like, I don't sit down and journal every morning about, like, the leaves falling outside my window, but I, f- I feel like I, like I like words and I like using them. And I like when people give them to me, like Gary, and then I'm just like, sweet. Thanks, Gary. I'll just cut that poem into little pieces and use it. Yeah, so maybe I can recognize a poem when others give it to me, if that makes me a poet. Huh, that's interesting. It's just, yeah. It feels more like poetry to me, not that I know a damn thing about poetry. Yeah. I don't, I don't either. 
Awesome. Yeah, so we're both... We should probably go to the question then from the audience. I do want to say one thing. Um, PRX Second Ear was a huge Mm -hmm. boost for me with this because they had the program where you can submit a piece that you feel weird about or you need help with, and they'll help help edit. So they were the first other eyes other than myself that had seen it, and it was such a relief to... um, just show it to them, and they were like, this isn't so bad, and we'll help you. You know, so that was really, uh, PRX Second Year is wicked, and I, I you know, I encourage all of you to take that. Great. Take it. Hi, I'm Ben. Uh, I'm curious w- whether the the EQ on those voices was something you added later, or were they, were the, they just recorded that way? Hmm. N- not the not the foghorn guy, but yeah. the man and the woman. Um. Well, actually, I, I did those interviews before I went to Transom, so I didn't really know much about recording when I did it. Um, so, I and I think I I did jog the EQ for sure, because um, the recordings were not perfect by any means. Um, yeah, do what do you mean? Just the way they kind of sound quite. Well, they're shrill. There's, yeah. there's uh, the bottom's been rolled off or yeah. something. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah. I think that was a correction I was attempting to. They sound Skypey. Oh. oh, shit. <laughs> Rob. Rob hates Skype. <laughs> That's okay. I We're a comedy team. We're going to be doing... <laughs> we'll be here all week. <laughs> yeah. um, I, I didn't mean that in the bad way. It does sound like a Skype, and so I thought you had mm. recorded on Skype. So how did oh. you... Rec- That's, yeah, yeah, see? Um, it's, that's how I thought you right. did it. You mm-hmm. did that while you were at Transom. You interviewed your brother on yeah, Skype. Yeah. So, okay, so that's what I meant. <laughs> Don't hate me. Um, how did you record it? Um, I use my little Zoom recorder, uh, internal microphones, and I was like, Wah. Very, I didn't really know much about radio when I recorded those interviews, so, yeah. 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 That's good, though. Yeah. That it impulse. A, it was an impulse. To just pick up a recorder yeah. and go. I was heartbroken, you know. <laughs> I needed to talk. <laughs> yeah. um, I'm just curious about the woman that was reciting a poem and the echoey. Oh, the yeah. Voice, what that was and, and you know, what? The, the effect of her voice. Yeah. Um, I guess she was one of the storytellers at the Storytelling Circle. And I liked the lilt of her voice. And... Um, kind of like concludes in the end. I use her in the end a tiny bit. But um, I guess I wanted to let everyone know that this is... Mm, this is a story. It's it's sort of like a storybook story. It's not... Uh, yeah, I guess it's emotional truth rather than actual truth. Or you know what I mean? Like, it's not a documentary. This is like a once upon a time kind of a feel. Yeah, and I just reverbed her because I wanted her to sound like a fairy. Where does Pardon? Where did the words come from that she said? Oh, it was just the beginning of her story. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Once there was a young woman. Um, talk to me about the metaphor, the foghorn. Um, people don't typically use metaphor in radio stories. Really? Yeah. Is that true? Do you think that's true? They tend to be literal, right? Mm-hmm. They tend to be just direct and right to the point. Not all radio shows, of course, but oftentimes there isn't a lot of metaphor that's yeah. worked. So did you, talk, did you think about how much, like how much weight I should give the metaphor? Mm-hmm. And can you talk about that? Um, I just felt like metaphor was the only way to go with this because otherwise it was, the substance wasn't really there. Um, and metaphor has a way of allowing you to look at something um, more closely by looking at something else entirely. Um, and 
I don't know, I needed people's brains to move that way because heartbreak is such a murky, blind, you know, muddy place that um, I needed them to, to look at something else or hear something else, something clear, something they can focus on and then understand the, the heartbreak through that. Hi, I'm Andy. I was wondering, are you, are you single now? Like, do you want to oh. <laughs> go out later? Or? No. <laughs> I'm going to warn you about okay. Andy. All right. I have a, I have, have a, a mustache. I have a real question. Okay. That was, I was just kidding. I was kidding. Sort of. <clears throat> I was just going to ask, like, what kind of radio was inspiring in, like, the format that you used? You know, like, it's... Mm. Like the kind of radio that you hear a lot kind of holds you by the hand and explains very clearly you're yeah. in this place. And, you're, and this is, oh, did we say their name? And their first yeah. and their last name. So um, what inspired the... I think, well, I work with a, a guy named Chris Brooks. He lives in St. John's, and he's sort of like, that's just the way that some people do it, and there's so many other ways. And he's very encouraging of exploring metaphor and poetry in radio. And so he was my kind of first guide and friend before I went to Transom and learned about other things. So kind of him, although I never dared to show it to him while I was making it, um, his work and his mentality influ- it was the first influence I had. So, yeah. Mm. yeah. Sorry about that first Not question. Not so okay. <laughs> happens all the time. What are you going to do? <laughs> I'm used to it. Just kidding. I was just going to say that I, it was really nice. I, I love everything I've heard this weekend, but, and a lot, of, a lot of what I've heard has a real um, sort of deliberate forward direction, like this happens, then that happens. It was really nice to hear something that's a little more impressionistic. And um, I wondered if that it didn't, it didn't matter. It didn't matter that we were, you know, that we, were mar- we weren't marching along. Um, I wonder if you or Rob, um, if you know of where this might find a home in, in the world that is uh, the world of PRX. radio. Uh, yep, PRX. Yeah. Are there any uh, acquirers in the room? Anyone oh, want it? Transom. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's right. Vicky Merrick. Oh, Vicky. Yeah. Go ahead. Do you have an answer, Vicky? Yes, WCAI. Conservation land on the broadcast week. It's four hours every Sunday, and so I picked it up for the like I play a playlist of stuff, you know, yeah. podcasts that don't have swear words in them. Right, I got those covered yeah. afterwards. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, I, unfictional comes to mind immediately. I think it would fit in there, or it should. Right? Do you guys agree with that? Do other people have thoughts on that? Uh, Australia, yep, Radio Tonic in Australia. CBC? Uh, I don't think so. Maybe. Maybe on a certain program, yeah. What about the, I'm sorry, we're going to get into the mire of listening programs, but what about about the heart, which used to be audio smut? Would they they tackle this? You guys don't know. Okay. That that would be one more place. This is very helpful. Yep. Um, I just have one more question for you. Talk about the feeling you had submitting this to Third Coast. Oh, I wasn't, go- I wasn't going to submit it at all. I didn't even think about it. And then Jennifer Jarrett, friend and fellow Transom alumni, was like, you should submit it. And uh, I said, this whole thing is Third Coast material because it's, it's a non- nonlinear narrative thing. Um, 
Yeah, so if, if the feeling was, you know, the hour before Third Coast, things were due, I was just like, go. And then I just felt good having submitted it because it felt like a brave thing to do. Um, and how do you feel now? I feel nervous. I feel, I don't know, I'm, I'm grateful that people want to listen to something that's not quite as um, narrative, you know, driven as, uh, yeah, as most radio, I guess. Yeah. Thank you for listening. No, I'm really so glad for you, and I'm glad you submitted it, and congratulations. It's totally award-winning material. Oh, thanks, Rob. Yep. All right. Thanks. Yeah, Andy. Andy. <laughs> uh, Pat and uh, I'm sorry. Do you guys want to come up? Yeah. Yep. We are very much going to switch gears. Uh, so we have um, uh, Pat Walters here. Hello, Pat. Thank you for being here. Thank you. And Luke Malone. I'm going I'm to uh, take some time and set things up. Uh, these two stories are slightly different subject matter, but they're also somewhat, in fact, very related. And I feel like the whole room needs to be on, uh, you know, on the same plane with what these stories are about in order for us to have a discussion about it. So if you guys can just hang tight, I'm going to narrate and play clips from both pieces just to let you know what the stories are and to get a sense of you know, the territory that we're headed into here. Does that sound like a plan? All right. And of course... Be thinking of your questions, all right? Um, so first, I want to talk about Luke's story. Uh, it's called Help Wanted, and it's the story of a young pedophile. Luke, by the way, I'm, I have a script. If I don't have a script, it, it would be bad. So I'm scripting myself. We'll never get out of here if I don't have a script. Luke, by the way, is a journalist and a producer. He's originally from Sydney, Australia. Currently, he's based in New York, and he's worked for Matter, This American Life, The Atlantic, The Daily Beast, and Salon. And in Help Wanted... That's the name of the piece. Luke says he became interested in the topic of pedophilia because of the Jerry Sandusky case. Sandusky was the famous football coach at the University of Pennsylvania, and Sandusky was convicted of serial child molesting in 2012. And Luke thought, well, how does that happen? How does someone become a pedophile? And in particular, Luke was interested in talking to someone who was in the early stages of the disorder, someone who recognized their attraction to young people at an early age. And Luke found someone named Adam. Adam is now 19. Just to remind you, Adam isn't his real name, and his voice has been altered to protect his identity. But even knowing he'd be anonymous, he was uncomfortable. Uh, you know, I'm nervous. Why? Just don't think I'm a very vulgar person. It's even weird for me to say it out loud, you know, it's something I type probably, uh, you know, 50 times a day, just, you know, chatting uh, with some people online, but... Uh, actually saying it out loud is, you know, not very easy for me. Do you see yourself as a pedophile? Uh, yes. And have you ever acted on your attraction? No. Adam told Luke that his attraction to children started when he was around 11, and he was attracted to children ages 3 to 8 years old. He was 14 when he started watching porn. Porn involving children. For privacy he found a way to connect an old computer that he had in his room. Before long, he was downloading it on a daily basis. He couldn't believe how easy it was. It was exhilarating. That's the most uh, accurate thing I could say about it. I think for people, you know, 
who were listening to this, this show, when they hear that, it's going to be kind of hard for them to understand, you know, what you're feeling, and I really want them to. So can you tell me, like, did you have any concerns for the kid in the videos at this time? Like, did it occur that someone else was abusing them by making these videos? No. First off, the, the first child pornography I came across, uh, I don't think it even involved adults. You know, what I thought is, you know, I'd, I'd like to do these types of things. Uh, so, you know, it, it's great that I can watch other people, you know, who are closer to my age range do these types of things. I just see, you know, two kids doing something that uh, I fantasized about doing. So, you know, I'm one of the kids. Remember, he was 14. And, you know, it was a little while later as, you know, I started watching the stuff, uh, you know, more and more when I kind of realized that, you know, I was getting older uh, and it wasn't some phase I was going through, but, you know, the the children I was interested in weren't getting older, you know, to follow along with me, but they were actually getting younger. Did it strike you as wrong? At that age, no. Mm. You know, I knew I knew it was illegal. Um, I knew it was considered wrong, but I, I did not know why it was considered wrong. I figured it something that wasn't allowed. I'd been using it for two years uh, before I started to think these children are, are real people and, you know, they could potentially be hurt, you know, with this. The way Adam figured it out was particularly brutal. He was 16 and he came across a video he wanted to unsee. There's no easy way to say this. It involved a very small child, an 18-month-old. I remember uh, thinking that I wanted to reach through the computer screen and kill the person. I was just so horrified at what I saw. You know, at that point, you know, I knew I knew something was really wrong. So I'm cutting a lot out here to, to try to get us through the story, and I feel like I hope I'm doing the story justice. Um, so in short, Adam sought help. It was no easy task. Not a lot is known about pedophilia, so therapists don't have a lot of tools for helping people like Adam. And as Luke reported in the piece, there are upwards of 3 million pedophiles in the U.S. alone. With few options for help and little research to explain why pedophiles are the way they are, Adam started a support group online. There are nine members. Luke connected Adam and his group to a researcher, and that researcher says she's hopeful for the members of the group that there might be a way out, but Adam, Adam's not so sure. The truth is, I know what my attractions are. I know they're there. By every definition of the medical term, I am one. Sometimes you really just know these things. Adam says being a pedophile is something he'll spend the rest of his life battling. But he's committed to managing it. He's thought ahead to his future in a way that most 19-year-olds don't. You know, I'd, I'd like a partner, obviously. You know, the the thought thought of having a kid is very scary. Um, I don't, I'm not convinced I, I could ever allow myself to do that, um, you know, as much as I may want it. Most, I think most people, you know, want kids um, at some point in their lives. And it's something that, well, I'm not saying I never will have. It's something I don't think I will have, you know, for, I guess, for both of our safeties. Imagine being a teenager and being told never to act on your sexual feelings, ever, for the rest of your life. 
That's what we're asking of these people. At the moment, there is no clear plan for how to do that. But maybe there should be. That, in essence, is uh, Luke's story, and it's called Help Wanted, and it aired on This American Life. Uh, I also wanted to set up Pat's story a little bit here, which aired on Radiolab. And uh, Pat, is, um, Pat is senior editor of Pop-Up Magazine. Pop-Up, this is so interesting to me. Um, Pop-Up is a live magazine in San Francisco. They put writers, photographers, filmmakers, and radio producers on stage to tell new reported nonfiction stories. Pat also worked at Radio Lab for several years. He's still a contributor there. And that's where his story was first heard. It's called Fault Line. So we're going to start uh, with a story from our producer, Pat Walters, about a couple. Oh, my word. <laughs> that's the lady. I'm Janet. This is the guy. <laughs> so I don't need you to introduce yourself. That's usually the thing we do, but we're not telling people who you are. We're going to call him Kevin. Kevin, yeah, 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 that's, yeah, that's my name. That's suspicious at all. <laughs> it's not his real name. It'll make sense why we're not using his real name in a second. Okay, you know... So this one starts a few summers ago. It was July 2006. Jan and Kevin were at home. And uh, some people you don't know show up. And maybe I'll start with you. When they show up at the door? So we were, it was, uh, we were getting ready to go down the shore. It was a Friday. So we, so we're in the kitchen and, and they come to the back door. I thought that, I thought that they were fundraising. I thought they might've been firemen just by, you know, the, the blue, sh- the blue shirt and then realized that, uh, that they were, they were law enforcement. Two women and, uh, I think two men. More came up from around the, you know, the side of the house. And they show us their badges. Were they cops or? They were Homeland Security. They took me outside. And they kept me, and they asked me to stay in the kitchen. And they had a a woman with me. I didn't know what was going on. Nobody said anything to me. What are they saying to you on the porch, meanwhile? When they they showed up, and I got to the door, he said, you know why we're here? I said, yeah, I do. I was expecting you. And I showed them where everything was. So the authorities are at the door. And, of course, you want to know what happens next. And so, like any good story, you start with some action, preferably at a tension-filled moment, and then you go back in time. And that's exactly what Pat did in the story. Pat takes us through Kevin's history, and I'm going to run through a little bit of that now. In short, and I'm leaving out a whole bunch of things, Kevin has epilepsy. It's been treated with surgery. All seems well, but eventually he has a seizure while driving, so he can't drive anymore. There's a woman at work. Her name is Jan, and Jan agrees to be his driver and commute with him. And eventually, Jan and Kevin fall in love, singing songs together in the car. Kevin's uh, a musician, so it kind of makes sense. And they'd sing Jackson Brown and James Taylor and Bonnie Raitt. Sounds horrible to me. Um, But, uh, you know, they fall in love and get married, and it's very sweet, actually. Um, And then Kevin's seizure... I needed to throw in some humor here at some point. Uh, And then Kevin's seizures return, so he has surgery again. But there's a risk. The risk is he may lose his musical sensibility. No more singing, no more music in his life. Music would be white noise. But they took the risk. Kevin had surgery, and everything turned out okay. No seizures, and he was still musical. So you go home, and like it seems to have worked. Yeah, as far as seizures go, we thought, okay, this is it. We're home free. And uh, I was just happy to have some normalcy. But then in the winter... By, by beginning the middle of January... 
Kevin noticed he wanted to eat. My physical appetite, a lot more than usual, got like insane. This is a guy who didn't eat breakfast. He had minimal lunch and he'd have a sensible dinner, maybe a snack. That was it. But now I could eat the couch. It just was odd. It was not him normally, but you know, you're like, okay. She thought maybe it's just a side effect from the medications. But then the piano. He'd play the piano for hours. The same songs they used to sing in the car together. If he had stuck on a piece, he would play it for hours. Like how many hours? Eight. Eight, nine. And then there was sex. You know, we were a happy, healthy couple. Kevin's nodding. Yeah, yeah, it was fine. But what was abnormal was it was, it was anywhere. Clearly it wasn't like, oh, we're in the supermarket, let's have sex here. I mean, it wasn't like that. But I mean, it was like, I could just walk in the kitchen from my out of work and he'd be like, oh, let's go here. Which struck her as weird, but then again... We were thinking, you know, let's try to have a family. So the timing made things confusing. And more than that, it wasn't like any of this stuff was out of character exactly. In fact, it was all stuff that she liked about him. Yeah. Except now it was all turned up to 11. All the things that were wonderful became chores. And that's pretty much where things were at when those federal agents showed up in July of 2006. I was just completely blindsided. He said, you know why we're here? I said, yeah, I do. I was expecting you. Kevin took the agents upstairs. I took them right into here where my computer was. And they arrested him for what was on that computer. I gave it up to him right away. Warning, uh, this next passage contains some graphic imagery. I mean, I, I hadn't... I don't know if I had fully, like... I think I had just, like, let child porn be this kind of vague thing that meant someone younger than 18 but then i read some of the court documents and there were like toddlers there were picked videos of two three and four year olds there there these sites had the most despicable disgusting things you can you can imagine infants on throw um you know pre preteen and you know pre you know and, and adolescence it bought, and you bought these things and put them on your computer. I, yeah. Yeah, it, it, it bothers me. Yeah. It, it bothers me. Like, like I said, initially it was, you know, it was just your, base, your basic, you know, heter, heterosexual, playboy-like, penthouse-like sites. And then windows would just start to open up. And pretty soon he says... He was going everywhere. There was gay sex. They were, I mean, there was, there was bondage. There was uh, defecation sex. There was animal sex, xeno sex. I went everywhere that a button came up to push. I, I still don't understand it. I, I, still, I still don't understand it. You say it disturbs you and you feel terrible, but I just like wonder, like, how do you... Do you tell yourself, like, that wasn't me? Like, how do you explain it to yourself to so that you can kind of, I don't know, not feel like you're as bad as the person who goes there without a brain injury is, you know? Like, oh, I, I know, I, say that again. Ask that I, question. I guess I'm just wondering, I don't know, like, knowing that that's a thing that you did, and it sounds like, obviously, you know that that was bad, it was a wrong thing, and it was a terrible thing, um, but it was, it was you who did it, or was it not? I, I don't know, you know what I mean? No, it, it was, it was me who did it, but it was me with a complete lack of neurological control. 
So Kevin goes to court. The judge finds him guilty. And she says two things that really seem to be, uh, I'm sorry, and she says two things seem to be true, even though they're opposites. One is that Kevin may have had control of his impulses. He knew what he was doing. One example is his computer at work didn't have any images on it. The other is maybe he didn't have control of his impulses. She wasn't sure, but she sentenced him anyway to five years, two and a half years in prison, and about two and a half years under house arrest. Since then, Kevin has done his time. He's on medication, no relapses, both in terms of his epilepsy and his inability to control himself, and all is well. He's just trying to move on. And that, in essence, um, is a fault line by Pat. And those are the two award-winning stories we're going to talk about now. Congratulations to both of you. <laughs> the first thing I want to talk to you, ask you both is, how did you, when you called these folks up and you made contact, how did you convince them that they should talk to you on tape? You want to go first? Yeah, I'll yeah. start. Um, it just took a lot of time. I mean, I was lucky. I was working on a print version concurrently with a radio version, and I had a lot of time to work on this story. I didn't want to rush it. So before I even got to the stage where I put them on tape, I was speaking to Adam and other guys in his group every day for about three hours in total. So Monday to Friday, three hours a day for two months before we even got onto the telephone. And then got on the telephone, then I kind of flew out and met them and spent a week with them each. So I had plenty of time to really kind of just earn their trust. But that was probably the most difficult thing for me before I could actually get them to open up and speak on tape. Did they, I'm sorry, did they say no first? Yeah. <laughs> and so what do you do with no? Like no means no, right? Well, yeah, you know, it means no in general sense. But I feel that um, they were kind of like, the fact that they reached out to me, well, one of them reached out to me, Adam, who runs this kind of support group for young pedophiles in their teens and early 20s. The fact that he reached out once I kind of put a call out through various channels was like a very soft no. He's like, I'm not interested in getting, like, you know, being interviewed, but let's just talk. And I'm like, oh, okay. And so that's the, like, the start of the kind of the two to three month process of just kind of like, I suppose, wearing him down um, and earning his trust. I think he didn't know who I was. Obviously, he was like, you know, I was going to, by interviewing him, he was going to be put up for kind of like, you know, ridicule and harassment potentially. So he just wanted to be very sure. And he's very smart to have done that. And how about you, Pat? How did you convince them, Kevin, Ke- that he Kevin wanted was, to do it? Uh, in some ways, he was he was pretty easy. Like he he really likes he likes talk, telling his story. Like I think he doesn't he doesn't like the part that this was about. But he really like he when I go to see him, he had like written like many many hundreds of pages of like about his he had these long timelines of like his history with epilepsy. It's like really important I think for him to make sense of all this to like make it a, into a story. So. That and the fact that he's from, like, a mile from where my father grew up and so, like, and where I was born. And so there was this, like, immediate sense, I think, for both of us that we, like, got the other one. Like, he felt like he could be, be my uncle, which I think was part of what was interesting to me is that, like, like in general, I think he could be any of us. Like, this kind of thing, like, our, I feel like one of the big takeaways is how fragile our brains are and... Like, it could happen to any of us. So anyway, like, when I met him, we clicked. He wanted to talk. He, Jan was more concerned. And there were several times where they, like... I worked on the story for two years or so. So there was, like... and But not constantly. There was, like, long stretches where either Radiolab was like, what the hell do we do with this? <laughs> and it just kind of sat around for a while. Or where Jan or Kevin would be, like, you know, they got uncertain. and So it was more like... And convincing her was about, like, she she has many regrets about 
how they handled this, mostly that they didn't like talk to their doctor, you know, when things got weird, they were just, they just kind of like toughed through it, which is a thing like, and I kind of get that too. Um, but so, so for her, it was about like, let's tell people about this so they can avoid things like this happening. Hmm. And what about trust? How do you develop trust with someone? So even though they might say yes, they're still, they're still opening up to you in incredibly personal ways. And you could break trust, it seems to me, at any time. Is there, was that ever a concern? And if it was, how did you work through that, Pat? Uh, yeah, for sure. Um, it's really personal stuff. And also, like, this was the first time I think I'd done something where telling... It's not necessarily good for him. Like, he was being put at risk by telling this story. You know, there are a lot of people in his community who didn't know this part of him. He had a job at the time. Uh, you know, so so it was... And so, so like, gaining trust, I, I went to their house. Uh, I remember like, going to their house for the first time, and Janet had made cookies and was like, come and sit and have cookies. And I was, you know, like... I'm a reporter. I'm not supposed to accept gifts from my subjects, you know. Uh, especially cookies. Especially cookies. Like, yeah. you know, they were very valuable cookies. <laughs> uh, so, no, but so, like, I went and had cookies and hung out and, you know, and, and just, like, and didn't tape record for a while. Um, and that helped. And I, with them, it was important to do that and then also, like, keep reminding them. I think it's really important that we keep reminding people that we're journalists, you know. So I would, like, we would get really chummy and, and I would talk about myself and we would, we would hang out and be, they're easy to like have fun with. They're nice people. Um, but then remind them like, you know, I mean, we're taping, so it's not kind of obvious, but remind them like talking, not like I'm a reporter, but just like talking about the editing a little bit or talking about that, it you know, where that it's going to be on radio lab, just like reminding them, uh, so that they don't put themselves at risk because people forget like if you're you're all friendly to them they'll forget that you're you're not like your interest is in telling a story your interest that you're like you're the ally of the audience not necessarily them all the time trust um yeah trust me was kind of weird in a sense because once i kind of gotten the initial trust with the guys they was just so hungry to speak to somebody who wasn't a pedophile and who didn't judge them so that kind of came really thick and fast in a way that actually completely shocked me and several times i kind of did what you did pat but i was very explicit i get all this kind of really personal information and i just kind of had to sit back and say you know what like you don't have to tell me everything like, I'm going to ask you everything and feel free to tell me everything, but you can say no because they were just so eager to tell me everything. And I remember once I was in a car with one of the characters who didn't actually end up making it into the radio piece and he hadn't spoken to anybody verbally about his attraction to kids and I was the first person and he was 21 and he'd known her for about a decade. Um, and so the interviews were just crazy long and I think we'd been speaking in his car for like three hours and I was, was getting kind of late and I was thinking about the transcription and I was kind of just like, maybe we should like, you know, stop this and pick up tomorrow morning. And he turned to me and just said like, I have to get it out in a way that was just so uncharacteristic, uncharacteristically aggressive. And it just kind of like highlighted for me just how eager these guys are just to kind of tell their story and try and wriggle out and get some kind of help. So once I got that first initial trust, it was like floodgates. I'm sure you folks have questions. If you want to come up to the mic and ask questions, and I'll keep firing away uh, while you guys are lining up. You just said something about, if I heard you correctly, someone you were talking to was eager to talk to you because you wouldn't have personal judgments because you were a... a what did you do with your personal judgments? 
Um, God, maybe I got some like weird rare brain thing because I didn't really have any judgments. I mean, at the very beginning, I was just curious. I'm a reporter. I was just curious to know what this was like. Um, and I try not to kind of put my own personal values in anything as much as one can. But once I kind of met these guys and realized that these are guys who are attracted to like little kids, like like super little kids, and it becomes very kind of hardcore when you're speaking to them about it. But they were just so desperate to not act on their attractions. And it was kind of, all these kids were brave enough to say, I want help. I'm a pedophile. I want help before I act. And no one's really doing much to help them in a very real sense. So it was kind of hard not to actually feel kind of like in awe of their ability to kind of, you know, put themselves at risk like that. If you were speaking to someone who wasn't looking for help? Um, I, I kind of kept the focus very narrow, obviously. I mean, it was a very kind of, kind of sensational piece. And I was trying to tamp that down as much as I could and do it really, really straight. Um, I spoke to a couple of guys, and they, were, and they kind of entered into it. There are some kind of groups online who have support groups for guys, generally guys, some women, who have minor attraction, and they kind of have this line basically where they say that they think it's wrong because you don't want to put yourself at legal risk and that morally it's kind of ambiguous. Um, and they kind of featured in a written piece that I did, but I didn't focus on them because I feel that the ones, the guys who want help are the ones we should be kind of looking at at this point in time. Pat, anything about personal judgment? Um, yeah, I think, like Luke, I kept a really open mind. I think, and I, in the clip that you played, like I think I, I was telling myself like that this is bad, but not... Like, he didn't molest anyone. Like, and I'd been looking at a story before I found Kevin about a guy who'd had a brain tumor and then molested his stepdaughter. And that would have been a lot harder, I think. Um, somehow, I don't know, I didn't really... I think at first I just didn't really engage the reality entirely. I was like, I'm interested in Kevin and keeping an open mind and trying to empathize with, with his situation. And... I knew, his neuro- I knew his neurologist from a previous story, so he had sort of come into me in this uh, very relatable and almost kind of abstract way. I found it through a case study. Like, the neurologist had written about him in a medical journal, so he didn't have a name. It was all this m- medical jargon. So, like, that kind of blank space was then filled in with a guy who, like, felt like Michael Bobby. And, I was, and so it was like, oh, okay. Like, he had a lot... He had a lot going to kind of get me on his team at the beginning, and then I read the then I read the papers, and it's just so fucked up. Just like it was, I didn't, you know, it, it, I'm glad there were no pictures or anything in the court records, but it, the descriptions were horrible, and it was such a weird moment reading that because I liked him by then. I had known him for almost a year before I really saw that paper. And it sucked. It was just like, uh, and so, and I just, so I told him, you know, I, I think actually listening to that, I wish I had been a little harder on him. You know, he kind of, I think, I don't know. It was difficult to be hard on him at that time. Uh, but Because he could become your Uncle Bobby in a way? Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I, yeah, I liked him. And I had already, like, I knew this, I knew that the story ended. I knew that he didn't do anything to anybody. I knew that he got better. I knew, you know, and I knew that this is really hard for him to talk about. And so I felt like, I think I felt pretty bad, like, just dredging it all up anyway. And then really, like, nailing him to the cross. You know, just being like, that's so, you know, like, reading it to him or something. I think at one point I thought about reading it to him. But it felt, like, felt mean or something. Like, it felt like it wasn't necessary. Hmm. Uh, But I I definitely, I I knew it was important to address 
it with him. And after reading it, I knew that like we had to talk about it in some as much as I could like bring that to him and my reactions, which you know are the reactions he's heard before. You know, it's like his his, his whole family, like yeah, everybody he know. Like it's not new for someone to come to him and be like, "Dude, this is horrible." Like, how did this happen? Um, so I guess the answer is just like I tried to try to bring them to him. Hi, uh, my questions for Luke. Uh, excellent piece. Thanks. Um, my name's Andrew. I work for Deutsche Welle in Berlin, and um, I. Uh, Germany has a, an experimental treatment model or program for pedophiles um, where it's like group therapy and co- in combination with um, various chemical treatment options and it's all anonymous and uh, when I sat down with the, the founder of the program uh, the first thing that he asked me was have you heard Luke Malone's story for This American Life <laughs> and so I was wondering if you've heard of this program in Germany or any other programs in the world and was that part of your uh, research exploring other treatment models that exist outside of America? Because the, the conclusion that the listeners left with at the end of the, um, of the story is that whatever America is doing, it's not really working for these people. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah, thank you. Um, I know the program very well. It's um, Project Dunkelfeld, and you spoke to Klaus Bayer, I'm yeah. assuming. Yeah. Um, so his program is basically like you know like Andrew was it yeah. Andrew like Andrew said basically allows people to come forward um, regardless of their history in terms of child sex offending to come forward and say I'm at risk of offending against a child and I want help. Um, what's different in Germany? Is that's, that's the only program in the world that has this option uh, offer for option I guess for people. Um, the thing that's different between Germany and the US is mandated reporting. There is no mandated reporting in Germany, whereas in the US, if you go to a therapist and say I'm I've got an attraction towards children, on paper you should be fine, but if you fail to report somebody and then they go out and molest a child, as a therapist you're at risk of basically losing your licence. Um, and so basically it's a really problematic thing. It's great because mandated reporting has brought like countless instances of like child sexual abuse and physical abuse to light. However, every pedophile I spoke to of any age, and I spoke to guys probably about like, oh, like 70 or 100 all up of many ages, all but one. So they wouldn't come forward because of mandated reporting put them at too much of a risk. Um, and to answer your question, Andrew, um, Elizabeth Letourneau, who appears in the piece, um, is in the early stages of doing a very similar model to Project Dunkelfeld. She just has to kind of work out a way to get around mandated reporting. Hey, I'm Manoush. I host a podcast called New Tech City for WNYC. And um, Pat, my question's for you. You said that it, your story sort of sat around Radiolab for a while. Um, I'm getting to know those guys pretty well. What happened, though, that suddenly they were like, yes, this is a show? Um, yeah, thanks. Uh, my co-producer, Lynn Levy, uh, got interested in the subject of blame and, uh, you know, and booked an interview with David Eagleman and basically, like, it's like was like did the big idea part i think like this story is is really complicated and messy and it was just hard to figure out like what's the thing that it's about and i think it could have been about a lot of different things i f- i found it because we wanted to do a show about personality and i started reading lots of stories about people who had something happen to their brain and they became a different person and th- then that show fell apart and didn't happen and so it was just kind of around and didn't really have a home until i Lynn was like, let's do a show about blame. I have this idea with Eagleman, and we can, like, obviously, Kevin's story is about judgment in a way. Uh, I just have a question for Pat, sort of, um, 
small thing like interviewing technique just compared to other radio lab stories i don't know did you interview the couple together or separately and do you think about that ahead of time yeah both um uh they they were really they were very generous with their time uh, so i think if you can interview both together and separate that's ideal because you can interviewing them together was really fun and actually they're probably more than most couples i think they're they were very frank you know i think i thought i was worried like they're not going to be that honest in front of each other, but they've been married for, you know, 20 years and they've gone through a lot of shit. So like, it's not hard for her to say like, he's kind of crazy sometimes, you know, like, and I, and I, so, and that was fun because they were, you get them joking together or sort of correcting one another, um, laughing at each other. Uh, most of the tape in the, in the pieces from the, a couple of very long interviews I did with them, uh, together in their house. Hey, uh, my question is for Luke. Um, I was wondering if there was an editorial conversation around how you would alter his voice. It seems like that would be kind of a fraught thing to talk about or a decision. Yeah, it was, it was, um, it was interesting. So basically I was talking about it with Robin, my producer, who's amazing. Um, and Ira, and we had a discussion as to how to treat his voice and his mother's voice as well. And normally, you know, we kind of did a pitch shift and some other stuff, and we kind of did a pitch shift lower, but he just sounds so creepy. He had to, like, I'm a pedophile um, kind of thing, which you don't really want. Um, and so we got a little bit higher, then he sounded kind of too, like, childlike, like a little chirpy bird. So it was really kind of tricky. So we, sent it, we kind of outsourced it, and we had to think about, like, five different options, and we just tried to settle on the one that was the least kind of unintentionally creepy. Um, and funnily enough, it's, to me at least, it's not incredibly different from his real voice um which he's fine with um so yeah it was kind of interesting so we chose one that was basically just like a tiny little like mite different just makes the audio sound a little bit shaky did, did you run that by him you said he was fine with it he was fine with it after he heard the piece or did you run um, it by him both he were, he was really nervous before the piece came out obviously in general terms and identification was his biggest concern um, so I, we ran them by him. I mean, it's kind of a story where, you know, you don't want somebody to, you know, be put at risk. And there's a very real risk if he was identified, he would kind of go around and, like, kill himself, uh, potentially. That's not being too dramatic. And so we were just very careful just to make sure that he felt very safe. So, yeah. Wow. Oh, all right. My name is Amanda. Hello. And I guess I'm just curious, when you have a story that carries on for years, literally, how you're able to stay true to it when it is so emotional and so deep. And I know I struggle. I feel like the farther away from doing the interviews and the taping, the harder it is to get to the heart of things. And also, when you have subjects that at some point, maybe they'll pull out and say, hey, this has gone on. Why have I wasted my time talking to you? You're not doing anything with this. Um, in this case, it sat like I, I found it and pitched it and then I went and interviewed them and then it sat around for a really long time. And I just, I kind of thought for a while, I, I thought maybe we just weren't going to do it. You know, like I, I love, I loved it. I think it's a great story, but it just, uh, it, it's a tough radio lab story because it's. I think in some ways it's sitting like Radiolab shifted a little bit over those two years and became friendlier to things that aren't sciencey or necessarily so squarely informing an idea. Like Kevin, uh, he saw Oliver Sacks uh, many years ago, and Oliver told him uh, he'd never seen a case file as thick as Kevin's. And I remember thinking like, oh, Oliver saw him, and Oliver didn't write about him. 
So, like, why is that? Like, like why, why am I trying to do a story of Oliver passed on? You know, is it kind of like something? And I think the reason is that it's Oliver's stuff works really well for Radiolab because it's tight and focused, and it's like, here's a person who t- tells us, like, how blindness works in, like, one very clear way, you know? And and Kevin's story is this, like, bird's nest mess, and there's a love story in it, and, like, there's all this other stuff going on. Uh, so I think it just took a while. Um, but to your question, uh, it sat for a long time, and I stayed in touch with him. I would just call every, you know, few weeks and check in and say hi. Uh, but then we figured out we would do it again. And then I went back and started doing a lot more interviews. So it wasn't, he was far enough, he was close enough that I could, that I could get to him from the city relatively easily, but he wasn't so close. Like I was like going by his house, you know, and, or, or or feeling like I was ignoring him or something if I wasn't going over. So, um, yeah. And so doing those interviews again and like asking a lot of the, like doing some interviews, like sort of in the writing process, was really important to to keep it all feeling feeling present. Sure. Yeah, I just was hoping to build a little bit on what you talked about already, as far as bringing them along as part of the process of your story. At what point, like, do you feel a responsibility to maybe play them some tape before it airs, or do you feel a responsibility like once it airs to? F- figure out how they reacted to it and what, what you're thinking, especially with these two pretty sensitive stories that way. Uh, yeah, I, I guess I didn't play anything. I, I, I try, like, whenever possible, I think it's, it's really good not to. I think Luke's example is a really good, good situation where you should. Um, but it's just, it gets really hard then because you, you suddenly, like, I don't know, it's a difficult call because you don't want to be like, I'm a reporter. You're the subject. You just don't get to see it, no matter what. Um, but also, it just be, you open up a really difficult conversation when you start sort of saying like, "Here, like, what do you think?" Because they, you know, they're going to look bad. That's part of reality. And some people get that. Some people are very. They're like, "Yeah, of course, I, I look bad here, and that's that's how life is." Um, so in this case, I didn't play anything for him. I didn't feel like I needed to. Uh, and uh, I was very curious about his reaction, though. And I sent it to him. Uh, and then, you know, and we talked afterwards. And he was, he was pleased. Uh, he, he was, you know, he's, he's like, he, he didn't like that, you know, th- he didn't like that this stuff about him being a, looking at child porn was in there. But, like, he knew that it was part of the deal. So he wasn't like, great, I love it. I'm so happy that it exists. Like, he was like, that was good. You know, like, good job. You know, you put it all in there, uh, which I think is all that we can hope for. And I think that Adam was kind of the same in many ways because even though I showed him a little bit of clip for audio, I didn't show him huge chunks of tape because he kept wanting to pull out, like, every other week. And I had to kind of talk him off the ledge, like, every two or three weeks over the course of, like, yeah, I had some like, been two years, and so it was a lot of talking in the end. Um, but I didn't show him. So when he actually heard it, he absolutely hated it. So it was a little bit different to yours. He kind of wrote to me and said, you've ruined my life. I regret everything, which is super hard to hear. Um, so I just told him, just sit tight, listen to it a few more times, give yourself like three days, and then hopefully you'll feel like at least it was a somewhat truthful representation. Um, day two came by, still hated it. Day three, still hated it. So I was wrong in my kind of, you know, guess. Day four, he kind of said, I hate it. And the exact same reason as Pat, he said, I feel that the use of child porn was kind of very uncomfortable and gratuitous. At the same time, I realized why you had to do it. So, yeah. 
checking with him on each day to sort of see if he changed his mind? Or was he, like, getting with you? Or were you trying to, like, separate? Yeah, mainly me, mainly me contacting him. Because I was just really worried. I mean, to have someone turn around after spending two years with them and, and knowing so much about them to say, yeah, I feel like you've ruined my life. I mean, that felt like shit. Um, I was confident that he'd change his mind because, again, like Pat said, people, when they see themselves in anything but glowing terms, um, whether it be in radio or print, it's really confronting. And especially when it's a topic like this where it's kind of, it's one of the most hardcore topics there really are. I think it's a, it's a huge kind of, you know, bridge to climb. But he got there. Yeah. Uh, my name's Eve, and I think, I hope this isn't too similar to Amanda's question. Pat, you answered it more. I, I'm just wondering how you sustained working on something for such a long period of time. Um, I'm assuming you had other projects going as well. But if you could talk a little bit more just about your own personal, how you manage that. Um, both in terms of your workflow, but also keeping in the piece or entering in and out of it. Um, I'll do it really briefly before I pass it over. Um, I found it actually really useful. I mean, I actually, I was maybe a little bit different because I went through several iterations. It started off as a thesis at Columbia Journalism School. Um, so that was kind of like squared away. And then I was working on like kind of a more kind of general print piece and audio piece. And what I found incredibly valuable is that it's so rare to be able to spend two years on a story with somebody and I thought I was done after six months seven months I'm like oh that's good enough um and then you know time passes you get you get to know a little bit better and you form a relationship that's mainly kind of deeper than normal and you get more material like in my case I wanted to speak to Adam's mom I was desperate to speak to her because she knew about it and they hadn't spoken about it she kind of, like, the therapist who told her about it, they didn't speak about it after that day. And I was like, oh, my God, I'm dying to know like, what a mother feels about this. And it took me, I think it was my producer, Robin, it was the final time I'd asked him, please, can I speak to your mum? Like, God, like, 20 times. And each time he was like, no, 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 no. And the second last time he was like, if you keep doing this, I'll stop talking to you. And I'm like, ugh. So Robin was like, can you get his mum? I'm like, I've tried. Um, and I went back, and again, we just ground him down, and it was really valuable. So I think there was some value in basically spending the time. And in terms of workflow, I mean, I was freelancing at the time, so I'd just kind of juggle it in the same way that any other freelancer in this room understands, which is just constant hell. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I think I set it down several times, you know? And I think that it was frustrating. I mostly set it down because... Radio Lab was like, no, still no. <laughs> and I was like, damn it. But uh, it was good because I think I'd set it down for a few months. And, uh, and then whenever I went back, I would see things that I, I, hadn't, I hadn't overlooked or I thought were really interesting at the time. But then I, you know, you forget about it and you go back and look at it again with fresh eyes and you realize it wasn't that interesting. Uh, I think it was really useful in addition to talking to Janet and Kevin a lot over that time to just talk to other people about it, you know, like talking to, you just talk to a lot of people and it's this thing that, you know, you're working on. And uh, every time you tell somebody, they tell you, they ask an interesting question you haven't thought of, or they, get bored at a part that you thought was interesting and you know you can kind of calibrate and probably you know telling that story to over the course of those two years like hundreds of people you know just like you kind of get a sense it's not a sustainable way of like it's not a good process to try to replicate like okay what, how do you work well I work on something for two years so I can talk to a lot of people in between uh, but sometimes it's nice to have like when you have one that's really complicated to like let it be around like not rush it out or be forced to not rush it out. And you kind of feel like a reporter in the movies. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like always running around, you've got your stacks of files and stuff, which never really right. normally happens. Yeah, but it's like yeah. haunting you in the corner of your yeah. room. <laughs> Pulling your hair out, drinking too much. 
Hi guys, I'm Vanessa. I was just wondering um, I, about the public response to the to both of these stories. Like, did you have many people um, contacting you and saying like, "This is despicable. How could you tell this story?" And what do you what would you do with that kind of um, feedback? Yeah, um, I was bracing myself um, for death threats, and I got none, so I was kind of bummed. Um, and someone did try to um, dob me into the FBI, which was kind of interesting. Um, but I feel that because it, the, the first iteration came out publicly through This American Life, and I feel like the listeners of that show are so devoted to the show and Ira as a host, and he set it up so beautifully by saying, basically, I've never heard um, this topic being discussed in this way before. It kind of gave out this, like, everybody be cool vibe, this moral shield to allow everybody, well, if Ira says it's okay, it must be fine, um, which is useful. So initially I had a lot of people reach out, like, general public were very receptive, uh, a little bit of splashback, but what was actually really nice, I mean... I, countless people, uh, countless pedophiles um, reached out to me. I've gotten, I think, five emails in the week, last week alone, so probably about uh, like up to 100 or so have written to me, and I've just tried to like, direct them in the best way that I can. Um, but what I found really, really, really interesting is that I had a lot of arguments throughout the process of reporting with people who just felt what I was doing was defending pedophiles and just being generally gross. Um, but yeah, I was defending pedophiles, the pedophiles who want help. And I feel I got a, a quite a number of people who are survivors of child sexual assault reach out and say that while it was incredibly hard to listen to, they just said thanks for being like brave enough. Both myself and the show, I just don't want to make it sound like I'm great, um, that somebody's tackling this in a way that's actually more proactive. So that was kind of, yeah, my experience. Yeah, the public response to Kevin's story was, um, it's different. You know, it's like, uh, it's, it's, it's in some ways a really specific story, like unlike... Luke's, there's not really... There's, like, maybe five people who've experienced something similar to him, uh, and most of them are dead. You know, like, it's it's not a... It, it's a unique thing. So the response that... I, I didn't get any negative response. I mean, there was some, like, you know, people comment... There's, like, trolls on the website who were, like, he's gross. But most people were very uh, positive, and, you know, the responses that we got and that were interesting and most satisfying were the ones where, like, I think a story like this can help deepen people's empathy. Like it's more like the, the, the usefulness of it as a piece of journalism is less like telling you about a thing you need to know and more, uh, helping you get to know somebody who you might write off. Uh, and so there was a lot of response, you know, from people saying that they enjoyed that. Hi, I had a personal question for both of you that was very difficult to listen to very difficult and I don't know if it's difficult just because I'm a human being or because I'm a mother so I'm wondering first of all are you parents uh no I'm not no okay so maybe it's 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 a parental thing um but it was very difficult to listen to and I'm just wondering as a journalist we are taught to kind of take ourselves out of the story and and leave your feelings aside and I'm wondering if you struggled with any of that and if you have any tips on how to how to do that and were you affected like were there points where you were just like I can't do this anymore you know this is just too hard of a topic and it's very very dark were you affected at all like that um yeah I was constantly um there were many moments throughout it that were just pretty full on but I kind of braced myself and just thinking of two examples um, in my piece, we speak about the video that Adam saw that actually made him realize 
what he was and the potential harm. I mean, we speak about... I use the term non-offending pedophiles, but I mean in terms of, like, direct victim contact, and I want to be very clear, especially for your listeners, that child pornography is not a victimless crime. I just want to kind of get that clear from the outset. But that didn't kind of bother me. I was, I was expecting it. He was talking about this, like, incredibly hardcore scene. So the toddler was 18 months old, and the toddler was being defecated on and urinated on. So it was just, like, as rough as it gets. Um... But I was kind of like, that was kind of gross, but you know, whatever. Um, not whatever, but I just, I, I was expecting it to get as gnarly as it did. What rattled me the most in terms of, like you said, not just a parent, but a human, I guess, is I was sitting with Adam in his car. We've been interviewing, I've been interviewing him directly for days. And I'd always asked him, what is it about the child's physicality that most attracts you? I asked plenty more con- like questions with more context, but he, he was really good at speaking about the psychological motivation that he felt. But I'm like, what is it about like kids specifically and physically? And he was just, he wouldn't look me in the eye. He just got very, he was so, so deeply ashamed and he just kind of looked away and kind of just mumbled, small limbs, small hairless limbs and small genitalia. And something about that made this story incredibly real for me. It was like being like punched in the face, way more than kind of the much more hardcore child porn stuff because I realised that here's this kid, essentially, he was 18, a kid, and he's having to like kind of sit with this information about something he can't help. Um, and it just made it incredibly real. It was no longer in that moment, oh, this is a great story, an interesting story. I was like, this is actually really full on. This kid's been sitting with this for such a long time. So I felt the emotional fallout like that for me. And in terms of tips, how to handle it, Jesus. Um, I don't know, drinking a lot, talking, talking to friends. And I think, I think that's why the two years actually works as well, because you do speak to so many people uh, for, with various um, points of view. And I spoke to a lot of kind of, you know, quote-unquote experts who deal in this, so you could speak about things very kind of um, objectively. And that really helped me to kind of take myself out of the kind of day-to-day directing kind of stuff. Um, Yeah, I just, like, kind of agree with what Luke said. I think, for me, it was... Like, I had this mediator, you know? Like, my story was really about Kevin, who was a guy who did a thing that was really bad, but I wasn't really reporting on that part of it that much. In some ways... Like, it was... I, I kind of wish I, I engaged with it even a little bit more. Like, I remember at one point, I was like, do I try to watch something? You know, like... But no, it's illegal and disgusting, and I don't want to watch it. But, it, like, how do, do I really know how bad it is if I don't look at it? You know, I'm reading about it. It kind of gets you there, but it doesn't... It doesn't really... So, I mean, I did it in the end, but and I think that's part of why, like, for me the really emotionally hard and disturbing stuff was, you know, a page that I read many times. Uh, and then I would like set that aside and, you know, there was like a, you know, an hour where I really like went into it with Kevin. Uh, but other than that, it was more about, it was, mine was like so much about like how his brain works and his relationship with his wife and prison and all of this other stuff that, um, I don't know. I think part of the reason the story was attractive to me was that I really did like him. You know, I really liked him as a person. And that made it, um, most of the time, it was really fun to interview him. And then there was, like, some really hard times where, you know, that was a smaller part. Because I think in the end, it was a smaller part of who he is. And that's what's important about the story, that, like, it was this weird anomalous thing that happened that should make us all a little bit scared about how fragile our brains are. Um... But mostly it was, you know, that's not who he is. One last question, and then we have to go see Nancy Updike. I'll make it really quick. Um, So both of these stories have potentially big legal implications because our legal system is not really equipped to 
basically deal with this kind of subtle type of, of blame or um, responsibility. Um, and I'm wondering, I, a lot of the people in this room will stop at, at the story because we're storytellers. Does your responsibility, um, if, you, if you feel you, you have, you've had an ethical insight or an, an empathic insight, does it extend past this? And how can, how can a story translate into something changing to make people's lives actually better? Uh, I don't know. With mine, I think my job is to tell the story and get it get it out there to as many people as possible. Um, you know, I sent it to the prosecutor and, and the judge and, you know, the people who are directly involved in, in this particular case. Uh, and I know I did get a lot of feedback from lawyers and law students. Like, it, I know that it got out there in that community in a way. And I think that's, I think that's as, like, much as, that's, that's sort of where my part is stops um because i don't know you know I, i'm not sure what my 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 and my mission isn't like to change the legal system i think it's my hope is that a story like this would is that, that stories like this will make you make all of us just uh empathize more deeply with people think harder like appreciate the complexity of reality a little bit more um and so the legal side of it is a, a piece of that um but basically, the answer is nothing. <laughs> um, I'm kind of the same as Pat. I mean, my job as a reporter is to get the story out there, and it got out there, which is like super great. And people were kind of, you know, kind enough to listen to it and take the time to kind of stick with it. In most cases, I hope. Um, mine was a little bit different, and it's kind of great because I feel it's taken on a bit of a life of its own after the fact. And this, um, so Elizabeth Letourneau, the professor who appears in the piece, who's like one of the top people in the US dealing with this, and she's been working with one of the only people actually working in prevention um, globally. And so she's been trying to get this thing off the ground for a while. And after hearing the This American Life piece, uh, two organizations who kind of give, give like grant money towards kind of pilot programs have reached out to her to kind of for the first time say apply for this grant it's not in the bag yet but she says it's incredibly rare for funders to reach out and say apply for this grant so potentially um this piece would have helped would be one small part in her work and it might kind of help in some small way kickstart the first preventive program in terms of providing a therapeutic space where young pedophiles can reach out and get help which feels kind of nice yeah. great thank you everyone and thank you guys very much. Appreciate it. Congratulations. <laughs>